We continue this afternoon in an intermittent series that we have been preaching on Lord's Supper Sundays, a series that we have referred to as being the heart of Jesus. And this is a crucial text, as I will explain in just a moment. We're going to be looking particularly at verse 15 from Hebrews 4, but I want to begin with verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but in all points tempted as we are, or but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Before we look at these words, let's pray once again for God's help. Holy Father, we do thank you that from your heart you sent a Savior, because you loved us and you purposed to save us. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came and you have revealed your heart, even the heart of God, the heart of the God-man. And we do thank you that as we read of that heart this afternoon and as we preach about it, that we are preaching those things that in various ways we too have experienced and known. And yet we want more knowledge and understanding and experience of these things. And we know, though, Lord, that this cannot happen apart from the Holy Spirit taking the things of Christ and taking them and impressing them upon our hearts as well. Do this, we do pray, by his power and by his grace. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. In the four Gospels, there's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, he tells us, I am gentle and lowly. In heart. And only in that one place, Son of God pulls the veil back and lets us peer into the very heart of who He is and what He is. And this one time that He speaks to us about His heart, how does He describe His heart? He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Well, this text is something of a springboard for our intermittent series of Lord's Supper sermons on the heart. Of Jesus. And this has been prompted by a little book Dane Ortland wrote entitled Gentle and Lowly. And this is going to be the second time in which uh, we have focused upon this aspect of the heart of Jesus, the gentleness and lowliness as it is manifested in the sympathy of our great high priest. And this book that was written by Dane Ortland. It was prompted by a treatise published back in 1651 by Thomas Goodwin, one of the great theologians of that time. And Goodwin's Heart of Christ is an expanded treatment of Hebrews 4.15. And I'll read those words again from that text. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Goodwin's burden is to convince disheartened believers that even though Christ is now in heaven, 
He is just as open and tender in his embrace of sinners and sufferers as he was while he was here upon earth. And after an introductory section, the Puritan Goodwin, he explains why he has chosen this text with a view to demonstrating this point. I have chosen this text, he says, as that which above any other speaks his heart most and sets out the frame and workings of it towards sinners, and that so sensibly that it does, as it were, take our hands and lay them upon Christ's breast, and let us feel how his heart beats, and his affections yearn toward us, even now as he is in glory. The very scope of these words being manifestly to encourage believers against all that may discourage them, from the consideration of Christ's heart toward them now in heaven. Now what would it be to go up to heaven if you had the opportunity and to put your hand right on the chest of the risen Lord Jesus so that like a spiritual stethoscope you were able to feel the beating heart of Jesus, the vigorous heartbeat of his deep affection and longing. What would that be like? Well, Goodwin is saying that we don't have to wonder what that would be like because this verse tells us just exactly what his heart is like. And before we look again at what verse 15 tells us about the heart of Jesus, it's helpful for us to just pause once again, and I'm doing a little bit of a review here because it's three months since we preached installment number one on this text. We want to look just briefly again at what he says in verse 14. Seeing that we have a great high priest, we read in that verse, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And to encourage these discouraged saints, the writer to the Hebrews, he says, we have a great high priest. Now there's no spiritual blessing that they ever enjoyed under the old covenant that we don't also have in a better form under the new covenant. They had a priest back then, a high priest. They had a sacrifice. But we have a sacrifice which, having been offered, doesn't need to be repeated. And in the heavenly tabernacle, we have a high priest whose intercession presents a sacrifice that is efficacious forever. And notice that we are told that this high priest has passed through the heavens. In contrast to the priest of Levitical order who could only pass through the curtain, into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies with the blood of atonement in an earthly sanctuary only once a year. Our high priest in his ascension passed from the sight of watching apostles as he passed through the clouds of heaven and entered once for all forever in that sanctuary there to appear on our behalf. And this verse also tells us that he is therefore a great high priest. The long line of Old Testament priests called by God to stand on earth have passed away. But we have a transcendently great Savior who never dies, who has an unchangeable priesthood, and who is able to save unto the uttermost those who come to God through him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. And furthermore, we are told that his name is Jesus. He is truly man, and therefore he bears this human name, Jesus. He represents us before God in our humanity. 
And furthermore, he is Jesus, the Son of God, because he's the God-man. In him is the fullness of deity. He is Jesus, the Son of God. This is our high priest, both man and God, and therefore able to bridge the gap between man and God. This is the one of whom the author in this book goes on to speak in verse 15. And aware that trembling souls hear about this great majestic priest, this great one has passed through the heavens, that lives forever, and he thinks, well, they might think that this is a little bit of an austere and this is kind of a magnificent person, and maybe I I should stay away because he's too grand and too wonderful. He hastens in our text immediately to tell us of his sympathetic tenderness. In all of his divine majesty and splendor, he is a sympathetic high priest. Great as he is, our high priest is not one who cannot sympathize with our weakness. You don't need to be afraid of him, because he is the very embodiment of gentleness and compassion. And so as we approach his table this afternoon once again, you can come to him. You can come to the table, and you can fellowship with him. And for your encouragement, I want to speak of our great Savior's sympathetic office as we, and I'm going to review what we preached last time. First of his sympathetic office, and then we're going to look at his sympathetic feeling, his sympathetic experience, and finally his sympathetic sinlessness. And those are the points that are set out there in your outlines. And under our first heading in our last sermon, we spoke about our Savior's sympathetic office. The office of high priest, it was one of the most tender offices that could ever be devised. A king is a terror to evildoers, but a high priest, in the highest sense possible, is appointed for men, in behalf of men, Hebrews 5.2 tells us. He was given by God for the comfort and the aid of wretched, conscience-stricken sinners. That's why he was given. In our last sermon, We mentioned the most basic function of a priest, each of which, uh, I should say functions plural, each of these functions illustrate the sympathetic nature of this office and what a priest on earth was. This is what our priest is in heaven. We noted, first of all, these duties included communing with men. He was appointed by God to be a go-between between God and man. And as he went into the presence of God, He was to bear the names of the sons of Israel upon his breastplate and over his heart before he went to God. God also commissioned Aaron to teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken. There was communion. He would take their their sacrifice to the Lord and he would also tell the Lord, the people individually, what the Lord would have to say to them at that time. And while the prophets were the men that thundered out the judgments upon the nation and entreated the nation to repent and, and these scorching sermons sometimes. The priest, often he would be the person that would come and in a very individual way, speaking to a person that is grief-stricken over his sin, tell him about the promises of God and tell him about the way in which he should go. Broken over his sin, he would come to the priest with his sacrifice in his arms And the priest would not only offer that sacrifice, therefore, but tenderly show that person the way in which he should go. And with infinitely greater tenderness, our great high priest lovingly makes his his father's will known unto us. 
His duties included communing with men. But then also the office of a priest included interceding with God. The two main functions of the priest were sacrifice and intercession. And before interceding with God, he must sit down and hear the trembling petition of troubled sinners. He would hear the mother weighed down over the training difficulty she's just had with her children and how she lost it. He would hear the complaints of the oppressed. He would hear the trials of the poor. He would hear the broken-hearted confession of sinners. These are the kinds of things that he would hear. And then he was to take all of these burdens in prayer to God. And often the priest, he would fall short. You remember how Eli failed to understand Hannah's distress and really take it to heart and bringing it to the Lord. And likewise, sometimes pastors, we fail to enter into exactly what you're going through. But we have a pastor, we have a high priest who knows our deepest woes. And we can know that he rightly reads our case and he never mistakes what our lips are moving like Hannah's. And there's something that's really coming from our hearts. And then we also saw that the priest was thirdly tasked with bearing sin before God. We read in Exodus 28 and verse 29, Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before the Lord. He was to bear on his heart the judgment. In a sense, he was somewhat of a sin bearer, although nothing like it took place with Jesus. He couldn't be a sin bearer in that way suffering in behalf of others. But he was called in another sense to bear their sins in this sense that he would hear their confessions. They would offer a sacrifice and they offered a sacrifice for a reason. This is why I brought this lamb, the, the sinner would say. And when the priest heard the struggles of the people that would come and listen to the mournful story of their wandering, this required great tenderness. And surely there was never a priest who completely fulfilled the demands of such a position. But you and I never need to fear pouring into the ear of our great high priest our shameful struggles and sins. As we come to the table this afternoon even, you can freely tell him about the filth that's been in your heart. You can tell him about all that you need by way of cleansing and how you want to be washed afresh in his blood. And you would be terrified to have other people know about all of it. But you can tell Jesus, our high priest will never turn you away with a harsh word. He will never cut you down with withering denunciations. You can come, you can unburden your soul at his feet. And then fourthly, also included among his responsibilities was that of comforting mourners. It must have been a great relief for the sorrowing Israelite to go to the sanctuary and to unburden his or her heart to the man of God there, who would then remind distressed souls of the promises of God. And even telling one's story is a, a certain sense of relief in that in all, all of itself, especially if one feels like there's a sympathetic ear. And you can be assured that Jesus will never misunderstand you like Eli misunderstood Hannah. He will never send you away with harsh words. He will send you away having your trouble unburdened. And you will, having voiced your trouble, he, like Hannah, you will depart in peace. And your face will no longer be sad. Well, these are the features of our great high priest's sympathetic office. And now, 
And we just got started with this in our last sermon three months ago. But we want to look again now, in the second place, at our Savior's sympathetic feeling. Now, even though our Savior has passed through the heavens, he is still touched with the feeling of our weakness, we are told. Even though he's left behind in glory now, he's left behind all the pain, all the suffering, all the weakness and sorrow, he still carries in his heart a fellow feeling for us in our humanity. Even in heaven, he is man as well as God. And just as Joseph, when he was Lord of all of Egypt, he still had sympathy in his heart for his distressed brothers, so much so that at one point he has to go into another room and weep. Jesus doesn't forget what it was like to be with us. Our heavenly Joseph, even though he's Lord of all, he hasn't forgotten his brethren. His heart is still moved with compassion at the sight of their distress. And his sympathy is especially extended to us in connection with our weaknesses. In Hebrews 4.15, we read these words, that he is not a pride priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, every word of this phrase, it needs to be savored. Think with me about the little word with. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. And here the writer to the Hebrews, he takes us by the hand. He leads us, you see, into the heart of Jesus. He shows us what Ortland calls the unrestrained withness of Jesus regarding his people. And back in chapter 2 of this book, the writer to the Hebrews, he has said that Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect, and that he himself suffered when tempted. And because he was made entirely like us, except for sin, he identifies with us in the weakness that we have as human beings. In him was the perfect fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He himself took our infirmities, and he bore our sicknesses. Those are words that form the basis of the hymn that we just sang. We just sang a hymn that's based upon the account listed in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each of the Gospels. And there's a quotation of that verse in, verse, in Isaiah 53, where he bore our sicknesses. He took our infirmities. He wasn't, you see, some kind of a shaman that just waved his arms and said magical words and people went away healed. He entered into the suffering of the person that came before him. He took it to heart. It was something that was laid deeply upon his, upon his own feelings. He had taken our nature. He took our weaknesses. He knew what it was like to suffer. He knew what it was like to go through the difficulties of life. Now, there are people that pity the sorrowing, but they're not with them as one that has ever sorrowed in that same way. There are those that are sorry for the poor, for instance, but they were never poor themselves. And therefore, though they can be in a way touched with the sight of poverty, they're not touched with that fellow person in that poverty. There was a chief justice many years ago in England, and 
On a visit into the country, he walked out with a gentleman, and they were walking by a hill that was at a distance from the house. And on the top of that hill were the stocks of that village. And children, maybe you've been to one of these plantations or whatever it is where they, they had a thing where people had to stick their arms through and they'd stick their neck through and their bar was put down on them. That was the stocks. They were trapped there. They couldn't get out. It was a form of punishment for crimes that had been committed. And the chief justice, he, he went to the stocks and he said, let me just try this out here. He put his hands into the holes, put his neck through, and he said, put that thing down on top of me. And then when this is done, his friend took a book from his pocket. He sauntered away. He just went away. Just as if he'd forgotten forever what that guy was going through. In the meanwhile, this chief justice, he, he's getting tired of being in the stocks. This hurts. He tries to get out. He starts screaming at people to let him out. And he, and he hears this, oh, no, old gentleman, you was not set there for nothing. And so, of course, be treated like a criminal. Everybody walked by and nobody let him out. Years later, he presided at a trial in which a charge was brought against a magistrate for false imprisonment and for setting in the stocks and for putting somebody to the stocks. And the defender of this magistrate, he made light of the whole thing. This isn't anything that happened to him. He just, you know, put somebody in the stocks. That's nothing. That's just nothing. The chief justice, he rose, and he leaned over the bench, and he said in a half whisper, Brother, have you ever been in the stocks? Really, not my lord, never. Then I have, said the judge, and I assure you, brother, it is no such trifle as you represent. He had a totally different feeling for what that punishment would involve because he had experienced it for himself, the helplessness and having nobody having any pity, just being there let, who knows, for, for months if, if nobody would rescue him. But our Savior, he has felt and he's experienced what you and I have felt and experienced. The most intense pain that you have ever experienced is nothing compared to the scourging and the crucifixion and the pains that went with them. Your grief over the loss of a loved one, this too has been experienced by Jesus. Now we read that if you strike a tuning fork and its vibrations are then also in the proximity of another similarly tuned tuning fork, there will be a vibration that will be started in that other tuning fork. And this is called sympathetic resonance. And even so, there is a sympathetic resonance between your afflictions and the grief and his afflictions and his grief. And this is why it is written, all their afflictions, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old. As we read in Isaiah 63, he can say, I know their sorrows because he experienced those sorrows. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. 
And furthermore, he sympathizes, as this phrase is put, not just that looking at that word with, but with our weaknesses. Now, if our author had said that he sympathizes with our sorrows, this would have been sublime. But he chooses a different word. He doesn't say he sympathizes with your tears. He describes Christ's sympathy as extending even yet lower to our weaknesses. And here I think our author, he's referring to the weakness of the human nature that Jesus took to himself when he became a man. He's not referring, I don't think, to the weakness of succumbing to temptation. But he's referring to the weakness that renders us susceptible to temptation. And this is illustrated by his temptations in the wilderness. When he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and afterwards hungered, that little phrase, he knew terrible cravings of hunger. He experienced it. In his emaciated starvation state, he was subjected to physical weakness and such a craving as never experienced before that would have led us to give in to the temptation to get food by any means possible. And he had to rely upon his father to provide for him. He is able, therefore, to sympathize with all the pressures that come upon us. With Abraham, for instance, when he's going down into Egypt during the time of famine. And likewise, he's able to sympathize with the struggling saint who has a thorn in the flesh, which might tempt a believer to complain, to become bitter, to become, and to resort to unbiblical measures to get relief. And we're not saying that he sympathizes with the sinful impulse in that situation to murmur against God. But he does sympathize with the intense pain and the great struggle that provokes that sinful response. He sympathizes with our weakness. The weakness that you have when you get irritable. The weakness that you have in your flesh when you're tempted to get discouraged and be sinfully discouraged and to be unbelieving. Not the weakness of sin, but the weakness that makes you vulnerable. But now notice, thirdly, the little word our. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Jesus feels for you. He feels for me. Now maybe you have just been slandered behind your back. It really hurts. And Jesus knew what this was like because his enemies were constantly slandering him with lies. And in this kind of a situation, the temptation is very great to retaliate. Or you have a son or a daughter that's turned against everything that you hold dear. A son or a daughter that wants to take every opportunity to prove you wrong and prove that he or she is right in, un, in, in his or her unbelief. And so in order to justify his or her thinking, this loved one is hell-bent, you see, in starting arguments. And it takes everything to, within you to, to restrain your temper. And while Jesus, he doesn't side with your sinful anger, he fully knows the deep hurt you see that you feel in having everything you believe challenged and resisted and rejected. He senses and knows why you were so vulnerable to that temptation. Now perhaps you've just left a newly made grave. So in your weakness, you're tempted to question God's ways. Why did you take him? Why did you take her? 
or your weakness pertains to a natural disposition to become downcast. We heard about that this morning. You have a naturally melancholy disposition. And in this weakness, you're tempted to become overcome with dark, foreboding thoughts. And while the man of sorrows was thoroughly acquainted with grief, he never gave in to unbelieving grief. And yet he can sympathize with the feeling of darkness that envelops you, that, it, that, is, a t- that is a trial to your faith. And whatever it is, he sympathizes in every weakness that you and I experience. And this brings me to the main point of this phrase, that word sympathize. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Now the word translated sympathize is a compound word. It's made up from a prefix, which means with, and it's joined to a word, which means to suffer. So it means to suffer with. That's what it is to sympathize. Sympathy, it's not cool, detached pity. It's the kind of solidarity and oneness you see of heart that's echoed in the way that the heart of a parent is bound up with the life of a child, living as it were through that child, having exhilaration, seeing that child experience new joys, and having pain in seeing that child go through new trials. But it's even deeper than that. In our pain, Jesus is pained. In our suffering, he feels the suffering as if it's his own suffering. This is what Isaiah tells us. Our text is telling us that in all of our struggles, he is feelingly drawn out to us in our distress. You see, the Bible never depicts Jesus as a superhero. He's not a super Mario or any of these other super supers that we go to movies to see. He was a sinless man, not a sinless superman. He's not like a spoiled rich kid that inherited his wealth and never knew hardship. And having experienced our weakness and our troubles, he is never without understanding and therefore aloof because he's never been through it. As one writer suggested, referring to Jesus growing up, he woke up with bedhead. He had pimples at 13. He never would have appeared to on the cover of men's health, because we're told he had no beauty that we would desire him, Isaiah 53, 2. He came as a normal man to normal men. He knows what it's like to be thirsty, hungry, despised, rejected, scorned, shamed, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused, suffocated, tortured, and killed. He knows what it's like to be lonely. His friends abandoned him when he needed them most. Had he lived today, every ex-follower and every meta-friend would have unfriended him when he turned 33. Now, too many people, they're too wrapped up in their own trials that they have no room in their hearts for sympathy for others because they're all wrapped up in their own problems. They want to know everybody else to know about their problems. And when such a person gets up in the morning, All of her thoughts are focused on the dreadful night that she just went through, the dreadful day before that. Then her thoughts are directed towards some kind of ache that she feels in her neck. And on and on the day goes in the same way. 
And her great business throughout that day is to let everybody know how she's suffering and how, how, all the troubles that she's been going through. She wants everybody to feel sorry for her. She feels as if she has a right to the monopoly of sympathy, you see. And the market is, 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 is very dear, but she, she commands a, a big part of that market. And there's no, nothing left in her heart, you see, for anybody else. How different it is with Jesus. As we read the Gospels, we never get the impression that he was preoccupied with getting everybody else to feel sorry for him. He was preoccupied with other people, not himself. And then on the other hand, there are other people that are all wrapped up in their glory, so much so that they can't be sympathetic. And because they've had such high thoughts about their own magnificence, they have no thoughts to spare for the people of other people in other different situations. They suppose if only people who suffer would just get off their duffs and work a little harder, they'd be well off, they wouldn't suffer. It'd be no problem. It's their fault. And they assume that their prosperity is solely the, the basis, it's solely due to the fact that they're very industrious, they plan ahead, and they suppose that everybody else is knocked down in life, it's only down because of their laziness and because of their poor planning. They deserve it. Preaching at a time when hospitals depended largely on private donations. Charles Spurgeon, he makes this observation. Well, this is at a time when the government didn't pay for everything. Some men have no more feeling than granite. They will say about the collection today, I shall not give anything to the hospitals. Let the people take care of themselves. If they were more thrifty, they would have a little, laid a little by for the rainy day and would not have to need have hospitals provided for them. Well, Jesus was never like that. So full of himself and so full of his accomplishments and how he was self-sufficient, how he's diligent, that there wasn't any room for thoughts for others. He made himself instead of no reputation. He took himself the form of a servant and he served others. He was preoccupied with them, not himself. And instead of being wrapped up with himself, his heart is wrapped up with your struggles, you see, and with your trials. So consider your life. His heart goes out to you when you just had a romantic breakup with the, the one person that, that was everything to you, the one that you would hope to have a life together with. Or maybe your best friend has just unfriended you or just begun to be like ice to you. It's painful. His heart goes out to you when you feel like life has just passed you by. Especially like a young person that's very sharp feelings sometimes. We have not lived through enough of these trials to know that, well, we get through one trial, we'll get stronger for another one, but it just seems like you're devastated. He knows what it's like to, to go through that. And his heart's filled with sympathy when it feels like the one shot that you have at getting ahead has just passed you by. He knows exactly how you feel when a longtime friend lets you down, when a family member betrays you perhaps. His heart goes out to you when you're deeply misunderstood. He's there when it seems that the whole world is against you. You just want to throw in the towel. Now, our tendency is to feel that the more difficult life gets, the more alone we are. The more other people don't understand, the more we are left to ourselves in our trials. As we sink deeper into pain, we tend to withdraw them. 
We tend to get with, we heard about this this morning earlier, we get discouraged and we withdraw further and further into ourselves. Nancy Rain, she tells a story that she had heard 25 years earlier from a friend named George. In those days, work crews marked construction sites by putting out smudge pots with open flames. George's four-year-old daughter got too close to one and her pants caught fire like the straw man stuffing. The scars running the length and breadth of Sarah's legs looked like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. In the third grade, she was asked, if you could have one wish, what would it be? And so Sarah wrote this down. I want everybody to have legs just like mine. Well, why was she saying that? Was she saying that because she wanted everybody miserable? No. But we want when we suffer others to understand, to understand what it's like. We want others to identify with us. We don't want to be alone in our struggles. But our sympathetic Savior, when we have him, we're never alone. He enters into our struggles. We're never without one who doesn't understand. He is never aloof from our trials. Well, having looked at our Savior's sympathetic office and then his sympathetic feeling, I want to say a few words in the third place about our Savior's sympathetic experience. Hebrews 4.15, it goes on to say, He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And here, the writer to the Hebrews, he's answering the question that's in the back of all of our minds when we hear about Jesus having experienced every trial that we've experienced. But what about our sins? He's never experienced what it's like to sin, has he? Surely we think he can't be in solidarity with us in that most piercing of all pains, the guilt and the shame of sin. Well, the word that's translated tempted, it can also be translated tried or tested. But the fact that we're told here that he's tempted in all points like we are yet without sin, I think this implies that in this place, the word means tempted. And here's the scandal of, of this verse. Christ's solidarity with us, it extends beyond just our various trials, you see, now even to our temptations. In his temptations, he went through temptations like you and me. And we have a sample of them in those 40 days and 40 nights that he had in the wilderness. And we have three great temptations that sum up the experience that he went through. First of all, the temptation to unbelief. The evil one began by casting doubts on Jesus' sonship. If you are the son of God, just that little word, if he sticks in there. And likewise, he does this insinuating this little word in, in you. If you're a child of God, that he tempts you see to unbelief. And then he proposes a false manner of proving that he is the son of God. Circumventing, waiting on God for God's providential care. Command, he says, these stones to become bread. Take it into your hands. Looks like you're not being cared for. You've got to do it yourself. Instead of waiting on God's providential provision, Satan suggests that you just got to do something now. And likewise, he would tempt you and me to do something questionable, to get ourselves out of a jam, instead of waiting on God. This is to succumb to the temptation of unbelief. 
And then there was the temptation to presumption. He takes the Lord to the pinnacle of the temple. He says, if you're the son of God, cast yourself down from here, because it's written. Satan's good at quoting scripture. He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And likewise, he would tempt us to take chances where we don't need to take chances, especially with the occasions of sin. Or he tries to get us to try out some new, some new notion or to read a book by some prominent proponent of unbelief. And we think, well, I want to prove this guy wrong. Well, what about if he convinces you instead of you the other way around? What if in your pride you become a victim to his arguments? You should know better than this to put yourself into that, that place where you are unnecessarily tempted to heresy and unbelief. Your heart's deceitful. It's unstable. And it's ever ready to take you away from God. Don't read that book. Stay away from poison. You don't have to know that you don't take poison by, by taking a taste. Stay away from it. It's a temptation to presume on your heart. And this is to presume upon the grace of God. And then there was the temptation to idolatry. Satan shows Jesus the glories of the kingdom of the world. And he promises all these things I'll give you. Just fall, fall down and worship me. Just a little genuflex. Just a little, little worship here. I'll give it all to you. And in a similar way, he would come to you. He would take, tempt you to live for money, to live for fame, to live for pleasure, to live for some other idol. And in one way or another, to renounce the fact that the Lord your God is to be your only God, to be your only supreme affection, supreme object of your worship. Well, these are the temptations. And obviously, multitudes of sermons could be preached upon what I just summed up in about two minutes. But Satan, he came back again and again. He used different instruments of temptation. He came through Peter, tempting Jesus to avoid the cross and obtain the kingdom in another way. And he's constantly surrounded by adversaries that try to tempt him, to try to lure him into saying something that's going to be heretical or, or, or something dubious. And we could cite many other instruments Satan used to try to tempt the Lord Jesus. And in various ways, we are assured by our text that he was tempted in every way that we are tempted. We don't have the whole story of his life, but we are assured here there isn't something that you're tempted with that in some way there isn't some kind of a counterpart to the temptations, the assaults that came against Jesus. And then, dear ones, having endured all these various temptations, because of this, he is especially equipped to be tender to you in your temptations, not in order to excuse your sin, but in order to help you flee from it, in order to convince you to come to him to get strength that you might resist. Well, this brings me now to our fourth and final heading, our Savior's sympathetic sinlessness. In this connection, I want to make two very basic statements. First of all, he was tempted, yet was without sin. And the key to understanding this verse is to push equally on two phrases that are in this text. The phrase, in every respect, he was tempted in every respect, and the other phrase, yet without sin. 
Satan did his utmost to take advantage of the genuine limitations of Christ's humanity. His susceptibility to hunger, for instance, his susceptibility to to weariness, his aversion to suffering. When he was in Gethsemane, there was a natural shrinking from suffering that was not sinful. And the temptations were real. In every respect, our tells us, as our text says. But in doing all of this, Satan could find nothing in Jesus' heart that in the least was attracted towards sin. He didn't find some kind of a hook that he could grab inside Jesus' heart. He was without sin. Now all of our human weaknesses are tainted with sin. And even when we're given grace to resist the temptation, we often, after times, even after victory, we grieve over the fact that we had to struggle against it. That there was something in our hearts that pulled us in the direction of that sin. Not so with Jesus. He had no sin. He was holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners. So he was tempted, yet without sin. And the secondly, about the sinlessness, his sympathy is not sympathy in sin. We need to emphasize that. Now maybe you're saying in your heart, well, this is the rub of the whole matter, Pastor. He can't sympathize with me in sin. That's my trouble. He doesn't know what it's like to feel guilty. As a brother, let me just ask you, is this really what you want? You want a sinful Savior? So that somehow he can identify with you sinning and and say, well, I guess everybody sins. Is that that the Savior you want? The very thought of it, it, it's abhorrent. And besides this, sin hardens the heart. It doesn't make us tender. It wouldn't have made Jesus, his heart, any more tender. It would have only done the opposite. Parents that condone the sins of their children, they think they're being sympathetic. They think they're being compassionate and loving and tender. But in reality, they're destroying their children. Our text, it holds before us one that is more sympathetic, not less sympathetic because of his sinlessness. He knows temptations better than you and I do. C.S. Lewis, he made this point by speaking of a man walking against the wind. And when the wind of temptation gets strong enough, He lies down and gives in. And therefore, he doesn't know the force of the wind after the wind has increased speed, double. 100 miles an hour, not just 50. And Jesus, you see, he never lay down and surrendered to temptation. He endured the full strength of the temptation, the full wind of it blasting him in the face. He endured all of our temptations, not without weakly and quickly giving in. And in a way that you and I will never know, he knows the force of temptation in its utmost strength. He knows the strength of temptation better than you and me, any of us. Only he knows the cost of enduring temptation to the utmost and never giving in. That's hard. That's painful. So don't say he doesn't know how to sympathize with us in our temptations. You and I need a Savior who not only knows the pain of temptation, but also is able to help us when we are tempted. 
because he has passed through those temptations. Our sinless high priest, he's not one that needs to be rescued, you see. He's the one that provides our rescue. And this is why we can go to him. This is why in the next verse we go to him to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's not trapped himself in the hole of sin along with us. And having not fallen into the deep pit of sin, he's the one that can pull us out. And he does this in the most utmost sympathetic way. As Dane Ortland puts it, if you're in Christ, you have a friend who in your sorrow will never lob down a pep talk from heaven. He can't bear to hold himself at a distance. Nothing can hold him back. His heart is too bound up with yours, especially as you go through temptations. One of the most vivid manifestations of his desire to draw near to you in your distress is the table that he's provided for us, which we participate in once a month. He's not some oriental king. You have, you have to wait until the scepter is held out before you ever can come. You, you have a death penalty hanging over your head if you come unbidden and he doesn't want you there. That's not, that's not Jesus. He's prepared a table for us. He sits down at this table with us. He offers to you the symbols of his body and his blood. He doesn't just send you a sympathy card with words that somebody from the Hallmark Company wrote on, on a card. That's not the level of his sympathy. He invites you into his house. He sets a table. He says to you, come and eat. After you've eaten and after you've drunk the memorials of his dying love, he says to you, in this my heart to you is, is revealed. Now what I want you to do, my dear, my dear brethren, my dear sisters, I want you to go now out, having received this sympathy from me, and show it to others. Let them see that it's real. Jess Moody, he describes what genuine sympathy for others will involve. Compassion is not a snob gone slummy. Anybody can salve his conscience by an occasional foray and knitting for the spastic home. Did you ever take a real trip down inside the broken heart of a friend? To feel the sob of the soul, the raw, red crucible of emotional agony. To have this become almost as much yours as that of your soul-crushed neighbor. Then to sit down with him and silently to weep. This is the beginning of compassion. Jesus has been and is a sympathetic high priest. Now, my friends, it's your turn. You will never be. We're all priests for one another. We pray for one another. But in this sense, it's our turn, especially to be sympathetic. May his tender ear that listens be put into your ear. May his tear-filled eyes cause your eyes also to well up with tears. May his tender lips teach you what to say. May he so live through you that his temper, t tender sympathy will flow through you to others, 
May Christ be formed in you. This is what he wants of us. So that we are like him and others can see something of Jesus in us. And especially when it comes to such a way that they're drawn to see not just us, but to see Jesus ministering to them at that moment. That's our privilege. That's our calling. We are to be like this tender, sympathetic high priest. Let's pray. Holy Father, we, <clears throat> we confess that by nature we are self-absorbed. By nature we are consumed with our own trials, are consumed with our own successes. We feel little for what the Savior felt. And we confess, O oh Lord, that even in this regard we need your fresh forgiveness this day. But especially we do pray that as we've gone through perhaps some of us sitting in this room for discouragements that others perhaps don't know about, temptations which we would be ashamed to, to tell others about. And yet, Lord Jesus, you know it all. And you have entered into these things. And you, Lord Jesus, are our Savior. You are our priest. We come to you, Lord. We need your help. Help us in our temptations. Help us in our trials. And help us to be like you, helpers and others with their temptations and with their trials as well. And may it be so that some sinner in this room that is not yet right with you would see you to be a savior that is eager and welcoming of sinners. Do this, we do pray, in a way that only you can do, Lord Jesus. You are the changer of hearts. For you have a heart that is toward us, a heart that is filled with sympathy and compassion and love. Help us to know your heart better. Help us to enter into that heart and become like you. We pray all these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.